0: Hi there, I'm Pastor Rod Parsley and I sure wanna thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm the senior pastor of World Harvest Church where we love God and love people and I hope you'll be inspired by today's message. Now for more great content and lots of updates, I'd love to connect with you online at rodparsley.com. But right now, let's head into today's episode. Well, the old song used to say, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing that it was for me He died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon, pardon, forgiveness, Hardened there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? 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 I need somebody to shout at Calvary. Where? 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 Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, that mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. I want to thank you for joining me tonight for a series of messages from that brand new book entitled The Cross, One Man, One Tree, One Friday, where we will examine firsthand the scandalous cross of Jesus Christ. I, I want to begin tonight By telling you a little bit of my personal journey along the way. For those of you that may not know, I I was born a buckeye. I don't claim it, but I I was born a buckeye. Oh eight? Oh eight. Oh eight. I just wanted to do that to all the pastors who are not in Ohio. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I was born in Cuyahoga County in St. Luke's Hospital on January the 13th, 1957. Great things came out in 1957. Me and a 57 Chevy Bel Air. The day I was born, there were 22 inches of snow on the ground. And although Ohio has been the place of my residence most of my life, I, my heart, you know your head and body can be in one place and your heart in another. <laughs> my heart calls Eastern Kentucky home. It's there among the groves of towering sweet gums and black oaks and roadsides with the errant scent of honeysuckle. Near that River that forms the border between Kentucky and West Virginia. That's where I call home. It's there on those Appalachian plateaus that my loved ones lie now in sacred repose as a result of that cross and faith in the blood shed there. My family lies in sacred repose awaiting that final trumpet to gather God's children home. Somebody to shout all oh, because of Calvary. My earliest memories childhood center now, around a clabbered country church. You understand clabbered? I'm gonna ask you one more time. Well, They must have a picture of it over there. Either Jesus is moving on the side of this thing or they're putting pictures up there for y'all to watch. Are they putting pictures up there for y'all to watch? Are they showing a clabbered church building up there? Well, let's thank this wonderful TV crew for making that happen. I, I was unaware they had such a thing. Clabbered, you know, where the where the, where the uh, boards on the side of the church made of wood overlapped so the rain would run down and not in, you understand? And my memories center around a country church like that on the edge of the Tug River Fork between beauty and lovely Kentucky, and I didn't make that up. Mother Parsley's right here tonight. Stand up, Mother. Mother Parsley's right here tonight. Turn around and wave at these people, I want to see how pretty you all Now she knows I'm telling the truth. Our little town was situated between lovely Kentucky and beauty Kentucky. little town was called Warfield, that's how come I got a fighting spirit up in here. It was situated not far upstream from a God-constructed intersection where the Levisa Fork and the Tug Fork of the river came together to form a little short branch called the Big Sandy River that runs into the Ohio River, the Ohio into the Mississippi, and the Mississippi into the Atlantic. In the hills near that God-constructed intersection, in those little country churches where the preachers worked a 60-hour week on their job. Nobody paid their salary but the strength of their own back and the sweat of their own brow. But they would stand in the pulpits of those little clapboard board church buildings and they would preach until I developed a lifelong love for that old rugged cross. As a boy, I logged a whole lot of hours sitting on a hard, we didn't have any padded pews. We didn't have a crystal chandelier. We didn't have a program that was always new. I didn't have Tonka trucks to play with. There wasn't any children's ministry that I knew of except being in the tabernacle of God in that little clabber church building while they preached and sang about an old rugged cross on a hill far away. I was always fascinated in those days by the glass windows stained glass glistening in the morning sun they lined both sides of those little clapboard board church buildings every window was unique every one of them depicted a different bible scene in it there was noah's ark and there was jesus with doves coming down as john was baptizing in the river jordan and there was the creation story and there was something about revelation i never did quite understand that one but One thing they all had in common was they had a cross conspicuously placed right in the middle of every single window. And before I was ever old enough to understand what they were preaching about, before I was cognizant enough to understand the lyrics of the songs they were singing, I was already viewing life, hear me now, I was viewing life through the clarifying lens of that cross. My gaze through those stained glass windows merged like twin rivers with the truths that came from two sides. First of all, they thundered from the pulpit. Every sermon I ever heard growing up in those churches had the cross of Jesus Christ as its central focus. Then the hymns that resonate in my memory to this day always had Calvary at their core. I can still hear those voices echoing through the
1: rafters. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus but the blood nothing but the blood of Jesus
0: allow me to take a text write it down in your book if you have it Galatians Paul's letter to the church at Galatia chapter 6 and verse 14 where the apostle Paul shouts God forbid shout God forbid whether the denominational headquarters likes it or not. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, here's the reason we live like the world and not like the church, because we've removed the cross. Jesus Christ, the cross, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. I have a question as I pause parenthetically to insert and ask you this question. Why is it that the world, that something outside the kingdom, that something outside biblical authenticity, accuracy, anointing, and authority gains so much of your attention? How is it that a beer bottle holds more allure than the prayer chamber. I hear young people say, I was bored. Therefore, I acted like hell. Well, if you were that bored, I've got a 1,166-page book that could occupy a whole lot of your time. I need somebody to help a Baptist boy preach tonight. A true revelation of that cross will destroy the allure for somebody else's wife, preacher. A true revelation of the cross will destroy a rebellious, demonized, Absalom spirit that causes men to walk in and dismantle and destroy and cut and have no regard for pulling up the roots that another man has labored in his entire life to gather and cut off some little group of sheep to take across the street so he can be the big fish in a little pond. These three situations I did not just pull out of the air. They are three situations that I have dealt with, with other churches in the last two hours before I walked on this platform. And people say, what's the problem? What's the matter? The world still has control, the world still has too much allure, the world still has, listen, you bat your little eyes at me all you want to, all you get a rebuke from me, because there's no other woman in the world, every other woman in the world looks disgusting to me, do you understand me, because this cross looks beautiful to me. Preachers ask me, aren't you tempted to do thus and so? I never have that thought, much less that temptation. I need to preach this right here. I'm gonna preach it whether I get any agreement or not. I don't... You see, the apostle Paul did not run away from the cross as tens and hundreds of thousands in modern churches have done. He, he ran to it. In fact, Paul said, I'm not only going to run to the cross, I'm going to glory in that cross. He acknowledged the cross as the centerpiece of an authentic gospel. And I want you to join me for the next three Wednesday nights on an epic journey all the way up to the summit, all the way to the crest, all the way to the brow of Golgotha's crucible. From the hillside to a place of eternal and irreversible change. I need somebody to get on your feet and shout, change me, change me by the power of the cross. Now give him praise and give him glory. 1949, it's in the book. In 1949, yeah. an author by the name of Eric Blair published a book. That, that book would become one of the world's and history's most popular and best-selling novels. It was written to point out the dangers of totalitarianism. It's one step beyond socialism. Socialized medicine, etcetera, etcetera, etcetera. It went to great lengths to point out that power and the links that people will go to who have received power to preserve their power. The book was entitled 1984. And the author, you might recognize better by his pen name, George Orwell, in that classic work, 1984. In March of that self-same year, 1984, the year Orwell's prophesied dictatorial mind control by the all-powerful state came to prominence. Polish soldiers entered every school in the Masovian province of deeply Catholic Eastern Poland with one aim, remove every cross, Remove every crucifix from every classroom, from every wall, and from every door where they had hung for a hundred years or more. They fulfilled those orders, that marching army with their boots and their leather gloves and their automatic weaponry, walking into elementary schools with, with very, very ruthless efficiency, and quickly, very, very quickly, every cross was gone from every wall. But what the soldiers were completely powerless to do was to remove the bright outline of where a cross had once hung, on every time weathered soot darkened wall, there was that glowing image of where a cross had been. In 21st century America, we've been removing our crosses as well. In recent decades, the Supreme Court's twisted misunderstanding of the separation of church and state have brought us uh, to the point where most literal and physical crosses have been removed from all of our public places. Where they been protected, where they'd been honored and reverenced, where they had been displayed for decades. We're a post-Christian culture, we are now told. (sniffs) Shove somebody on the shoulder and tell them, we are post-Christian culture. Are you all gonna talk tonight or not? I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, we are post-Christian culture. Now shout, don't you understand? Well the last thing anyone in polite society would ever want to do would be to offend. The delicate sensibilities of a skeptic or an atheist or an agnostic. Oh, I'm about to say a thing now. Are you ready? The Taoist symbol depicting the st- Supposed counterbalancing forces of ying. Y'all yeah. shouted that better than you shouted about the cross. <laughs> oh, those are proudly displayed everywhere you want to look at. Chubby Buddhas <laughs> abound everywhere. And I'm not just talking about in your local Asian restaurant. The boldest of Christians, however, aren't we proud of ourselves as we sheepishly, most of the time covertly, maybe stick our neck out far enough to display the ichthus fish. Do you know why we display the ichthus fish? Because we know that most people have no idea what it is but you plaster a cross on the side of your building, you put a cross in the front of your car, you put a cross around your neck or on your lapel, and you immediately will be identified with the Christ of Christianity. It is the cross and the cross alone that seems to hold a singular power to offend. But surely in our churches, surely here, we'll find a bastion where the cross of Jesus Christ is both reverenced and honored in display and in proclamation. I would to God tonight that that was the case. But you know and I know that it is not. In a nation where a cross once topped the steeple of every church building from sea to shining sea in this great nation, the cross has fallen sharply out of fashion. It's so very old school. It's it's, 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 it's churchy. I have a question. How about the church not being ashamed to be identified with the church? we actually become ah, I'm going to shout right now how about we actually become the church full of signs full of wonders full of miracles full of healing full of deliverance full of holiness but for pastors (laughs) eager to appeal to an image conscious public placing the cross in prominence well we all know what that is I've been in those meetings. That's just bad marketing. Uh That's bad branding. You don't wanna be identified with that. It's all right to talk about the cross, but, but do it quietly. So the cross is disappearing. It's disappearing from our cityscapes. It's disappearing from our church platforms. But in a much more insidious and troubling sense, it's disappearing from our hearts. The cross is disappearing from our minds silently, steadily, stealthily, without fanfare, without debate. You couldn't make much noise about it because the church is so quiet, we'd hear you. We've slipped the cross out. We've slipped it out of our singing. I tried to listen to a very popular Christian worship album on the way here. I heard three songs in a row about Jesus being my lover. What are you listening to? Jesus is not your lover. How crass. How disparaging to the cross of Jesus Christ to talk about Jesus as though he was some sort of spiritual, sensual, sexual partner. He is the God of the eternal ages. He is the I am that I am. He speaks and the earth trembles. His train fills the temple. His glory destroys the darkness. Well intentioned efforts to reach this postmodern America with the gospel of Jesus Christ have resulted in the production of a crossless version of Christianity. I have a question. Could it be that the church's waning influence in our culture is directly parallel to the removal of the message of this cross? Churchgoers, they're happy to embrace Jesus the teacher. Jesus the te- Everybody say, Jesus the teacher. Jesus the teacher. The bringer of peaceable platitudes, lovely beatitudes, about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. They find nothing offensive about that Jesus. Let me just slip this in. I have been told for the last nearly 40 years, Pastor, if you would just adjust your message ever so slightly. I had a man, one of the most prominent Christian leaders in the world today, sit me in his office about 18 months ago. And so, you know, we sat in such and so meeting and we all said, Rod Parsley is going to be thus and so, he is going to do this and he is going to do that and he is going to shake America and we'll all be so happy and he's gonna ride on thus and so horse and he's going to rise to prominence and all he has to do is just adjust his message ever so slight. And I'm gonna come in here on Wednesday night and you're gonna sit there and stare at me and not shout? I'm gonna say it again. I'm a West running brook. And I may, go, I may go to heaven pastoring eight people, but they will be eight people that know the reality of the power of a crucified Savior. Jesus the prophet. Oh, nobody mind Jesus the prophet he, Jesus the prophet <laughs> seems to be welcome at the long long table of America's church's growing pantheon of gods particularly when his prophetic pronouncement are you listening to me now? stay with me so Jesus the teacher that's cool Jesus the prophet that's cool as long as his prophetic pronouncement squares up with the lifestyle we've chosen to live. And let me tell you, my dear brother and sister, sitting in these World Harvest Ministerial Alliance churches all over America tonight, you ought to thank God for your pastor. You ought to get up right now out of your pew and go hug his neck. You ought to thank God and shout and run and dance that you've got a man or a woman of God that is not going to bend to the pressure of this modern age because they care for your soul. The admirers of Jesus the teacher and the admirers of Jesus the prophet shrink back in horror and embarrassment from Jesus the crucified Lamb of God slain for the sins of a dying world spat upon I heard a modernist preacher the other day say who wants to serve a king that allows himself to be spat upon. Bolteth with angry nails into biting wood, writhing like an animal. In his own blood. No, no, no. Calvary is just too ugly. It's too shame-soaked. You're not going to win friends and influence people. You're not going to pack your church out on Wednesday night talking about the cross. It's too grotesque in its implications of sin here's the problem here's the reason christians don't want to run to the cross and embrace the cross because they have yet to allow the blood of that cross to deal with the core and the root of their own sin therefore they feel overwhelmed with guilt and turn away It's just too, it's too ugly, too grotesque. It's implications of sin, of the toll of sin, of what sin has done to me. It's it's too mean, it's too angry, it's lightning bolts and thunder and dark growing storm clouds. It just, it just makes me understand. The severe demands of cosmic justice, too troubling. I just can't ponder it for long, Pastor. Oh, why? with your bleeding, dying Jesus of the cross, say the modern believers. If we must have a Jesus, and we're not sure we want one at all, but if we must have a Jesus, we prefer the Sunday school version with the little children on his lap. So a generation silently Slips the cross down out of its conspicuous place and hook on the wall of its theology. Much more pleasant, less troubling images are found to hang there in its place and a stream of new books and preachers. Call for a re-imagining. Everybody shout, catchword. I want you to get it. Catchword write it down reimagining reinterpreting rethinking you know you know what you know what you do when you don't believe don't you you think you reason when you're standing in faith you don't reason you obey oh i'm preaching Now, I'm going to point out some folks to you. They're all in the book, so if you want to write me a letter, my address is Post Office Box 100, Columbus, Ohio. I'll be glad to read it. Please try to print neatly. The late, overwhelmingly influential, infamous pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, Harry Emerson Fosdick said, the traditional view of the cross and the doctrine of the atonement made Christianity a slaughterhouse religion. He suggested that Jesus' substitutionary death and sacrifice in our place because of our sins, are you ready? Is pre-civilized barbarity. Now I'm going to stop right here because I feel under the apostolic mantle that I am feeling the weight of at this moment. I need you to understand That a lie is a lie, regardless of how many people shout it's the truth. A lie is a lie, regardless of how that lie makes you feel. Lies often make you feel better. Compromise will always take the pressure off. I'm going to say it again. Compromise will always take the pressure off. Now, I need to say something to Mr. Fosdick. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for our sins. There is a scourge and a curse flowing in an undercurrent and boiling to the surface in the boiling cauldron called religion in the United States of America. It is sweeping the landscape. Those that no longer believe in the rapture, they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in eternity. They don't believe in the doctrine of sin. They do not believe in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And if we do not clear ourselves from these damnable doctrines, the church will fall by its own weight. Sit and follow your little squirrely brains on the internet. Read their literature. Listen to their beautiful music and allow the spirit of the age to shut you down a damnable wormhole from which you will never return. Let God be true and every man a liar. I got a feeling every church connected with us tonight is shouting a whole lot better than we're shouting here in Columbus. I'm going to give you another challenge, chance. let. God be true and every man a liar. Not to say it. You can find these scoundrels lurking in the open in what is commonly referred to as the emergent church movement. They seek to rebrand, rethink, Rename Golgotha. One of those leaders, Brian McLaren, author of the book, A New Kind of Christianity, states that the view of the cross that he was given growing up features a God who needs blood in order to be appeased. If this God, says he, does not see blood, This God cannot forgive. A common understanding, said he, of the atonement of the cross represents nothing more than a God who is incapable of forgiving unless he kicks somebody else. There has never, ever, been a more warped characterization of the sacrificial act of a loving God and a willing Redeemer Son. No man took his life from him. God did not murder his son. He is not some kind of murdered sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who willingly declared, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to pick it up again. No man takes my life from me. I freely offer it for you. Another book. Reimagining Christianity by Alan Jones says the place of the cross must be reimagined because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it. I want to make an announcement. These distortions of the cross's earth-shaking significance must not, cannot, and as long as I am breathing with a microphone and somebody listening, these distortions of the cross's earth-shaking significance will not go unanswered. Is the hinge upon which the door of human history swings. It is the pivot round about which all the events of the ages revolve. It is the fulcrum. Of God's grand and glorious lever for a thousand years in the crafting, where one man on one tree on one Friday pride a fallen human race out of the unyielding, diabolical grasp of the adversary himself. I'm talking, I'm preaching, I'm proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ, rough and rugged, mangled and mean, for it is here at this intersection of two rough hewn wooden beams that we. Can view with horrified wonder the raw ferocity of the love of Almighty God for a fallen race. Somebody shout, two beams! One vertical pointing simultaneously to heaven and to hell, the other vertical. Horizontal, excuse me wrapping its arms around the totality of the circumference of the earth extending outward 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 encircling the entire planet the cross the cross is the central message of christianity the old testament seers prophesied about it the new testament believers proclaimed it it is the irrefutable evidence of god's incandescent holiness and immeasurable love it is the place where god's limit provision collides with our deepest and most desperate need. It is where the furious love of Almighty God encounters our broken and shattered hearts. It is where God's ultimate triumph was seen over Satan's ultimate demise. There is no Christianity without a cross! It is the hallmark of an authentic, life-giving gospel. But in 21st century America, the cross is missing. We've created a crossless generation, and yet, crosses seem to be everywhere. They dangle from the necks of half-naked, gyrating, godless So-called Christian pop stars See that a woman adorns herself modestly Half of the so-called dance teams in America are an embarrassment to the cause of Christ professional athletes brand their bodies with cross tattoos of every size and variation imaginable. But if a cross should make an appearance at a town square or, God forbid, a high school play, the mayor will faint, three city councilmen will run for cover and the ACLU will file three lawsuits. Don't you see that we found a way to both trivialize and marginalize the most significant emblem to ever emerge from the rushing river of history? How's it possible that the First Amendment can be construed to protect the public display of so-called art that desecrates the cross by taking a crucifix and immersing it upside down in a vat of urine in Cincinnati, Ohio, while the National Guard is called out to protect that right. Then I have a question. Why can't a local high school teacher wear a breakthrough cross lapel pin to algebra class? I refuse to be silent as long as the schools that my tax dollars support continue to be the enemy of everything I teach my children to believe. Get the cross back in the school and you might not have to have bullying classes. Any society that manages to hold such irreconcilable views has slipped into a very special form of madness. There is a cure, and the remedy begins every Wednesday night for the next three Wednesday nights at the house of God. Without the cross, there could be no resurrection. Without the cross, there could be no Easter Sunday. Without the sorrow of Good Friday. Let me take you on an epic expedition into the heights of spiritual reality, where you glimpse the cosmic battle that took place in the heavenlies for your soul, and you realize the price that he paid to make you whole, the price that he paid to make you his. And I'm closing. What about those confiscated crosses? in Eastern Poland all those years ago. Well, one of the schools that was purged of every vestige in remembrance of the cross of Christ was in a little town called Garvalin. There armed soldiers entered the school and removed seven very large crucifixes that had been hanging on those walls since 1920. But when dawn broke the following morning, students arrived to find new crosses occupying the space where the old ones had hung. In the cover of darkness, their parents, parents who refused to allow armed soldiers, to take the crosses out of their children's schoolhouses. Those parents entered those buildings and placed those crosses back where they had been. So the next day, the process repeated itself. The soldiers came in, the crosses were taken down. They marched the children out into the streets. But there they were again on those time-weathered, soot-ridden walls. The outline of those crosses testifying of where a cross had been. The next day 400 students showed up. They had gone home and taken sticks and pieces of wood and with little Pieces of string and wire. They had made their own homemade crosses. (laughs) Here came the soldiers again. Riot police arrived, drove those cross-bearing little children into the streets of Garvel, and so those children began to raise those handmade crosses up to heaven they marched to a nearby church where they thought they would find security. And when they got to that church, those 400 students found themselves joined by 2,500 more elementary students from nearby elementary schools. Soldiers circled around that church, but not before the international press arrived. Instantly, images of those throngs of singing children and their little homemade crosses were broadcast around the globe those television cameras broadcast to a watching world the words of a courageous local priest who addressed the weeping children in that church. Here's what they heard him say. There is no Poland without a cross. Can I make an announcement tonight? Here in Columbus, Ohio and around the world, I need somebody to shout because there is no triumphant culture transforming Christian